This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're talking about the evolution of religion, its origins and its future. I'm joined by Robin Dunbar, a professor of evolutionary psychology at Oxford University. His new book, How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures, pulls together a decade of research between dozens of scientists to build a picture of why humans are drawn to spirituality and religion. To kick things off, I asked Robin whether spirituality was just a side effect of early humans trying to make sense of things that go bump in the night. I think the answer is yes and no, actually, because I... I my view would be that the kind of old um, perception of how things got going in one sense is actually right. It was the sort of going into deep caves and having, you know, distorted psychological stroke psychic experiences from altered mind states, uh, possibly even helped along by some obscure substances from time to time, which appear to have been discovered very early in the course of our uh, evolution as a species. It kind of provided the basis for thinking about the possibility that there was another world out there. But I, that said, I suppose the pitch of the book really is that the underpinnings to religion are essentially mysticism. It, it, it's trance-based capacity that we have to enter into what appears to be a spirit world, another parallel world to ours. And so, you know, the bumps in the night become important in that context because they provide you with something to that you need to explain. But in the absence of being able to enter into trance states and go on what was is always referred to as spirit travels in the spirit world, um, you kind of wouldn't have any kind of basis for explaining uh, the, the bumps in the night 
other than everyday physical explanations. So you kind of wouldn't go beyond, you know, there's a lion creeping up <laughs> and causing the twig to snap in the forest, or maybe worse still, actually, the people from the next door valley. So you take it from there and and you uh, build a you know very convincing argument that we actually we needed a religion in a sense or uh, at least religion was instrumental in our evolution and our capacity to grow to the the point we we're at today is that right yes i mean the the essence of the problem i think that our deeper ancestors faced was the need to increase the size of groups that they lived in in order to protect themselves from external threats threats out there now normally in primates in general those external threats uh, for which they uh, live in groups as the defense against them is predators. You know, the simplest and easiest way to uh, reduce your predation risk uh, as you're wandering around the forests and the savannas is simply to do so in groups. So what you find in primates, monkeys and apes, and indeed probably most other mammals and to some extent birds as well, is... Uh, the more predator risky the habitat is, the more exposed it is, the bigger the groups the species wanders around in. That's a kind of passive form of defense. You're not actually sort of chasing predators away. Occasionally that does actually happen, but most of the time you're just relying on the fact that predators aren't willing to attack large numbers of animals. It's just not worth their while. They prefer to look for weak and feeble ones on their own <laughs> just it's much less hard work for them to get get dinner with humans maybe with the chimpanzees or some of the great apes at least those predators seem to have been generalized into members of your own species uh, your neighbors who have the disconcerting habit of constantly attacking you um, and so this has seemed to have created an extra pressure to live in bigger and bigger groups. So while they were in small monkey-ape-sized groups, the kinds of classic mechanisms for creating social cohesion within the group, as say social grooming, leafing through the fur, uh, and sort of uh, uh, removing bits of vegetation, so on, uh, worked perfectly fine. But once they exceeded the size that monkeys and apes normally live in, pushing up towards the kind of sizes of groups that we live in today, then they had to find other mechanisms for adding to that grooming mechanism that, that actually triggered the same, same mechanism in the brain, um, but allowed them to, if you like, groom at a distance virtually with, with more people simultaneously, because grooming is very limited. You know, It's a one-on-one -on -one activity, and that's what sets this upper limit. Uh, and what came in as a series of behaviors, which are still all part of our sort of social toolkit, actually, things like laughter as a form of chorusing, singing, singing without words, um, uh, dancing, eventually things like feasting together, telling emotional sub stories, and religion. And, and those last three, I think, particularly the storytelling and the religious comp religion component uh, had to wait for fully modern language, human language to evolve, which clearly came in with our own species and uh, rather than bef earlier than that. Because, you know, well, storytelling, it's obvious, but religion depends on being able to explain to somebody else what your 
experiences are these kind of transcendental experiences it's 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 fine for you to have them uh, and i'm sure sure you do a lot of good for yourself but it's kind of like going and pumping iron in the gym on your own <laughs> if you really want to get a good uh, hit from 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 this effect then you need to do it with other people which means you've got to explain to them what's going on and got to explain to them is you know we got to do it together it, it's it's don't go up to the gym on your own let's let's go jogging as a as a group effectively uh, is is the storyline if you like because when these activities are done in synchrony um, as most of them are you know we laugh in synchrony we sing in synchrony we dance in synchrony we eat in synchrony uh, we lift our glasses and say cheers <laughs> in synchrony. Uh, all these social things are done in synchrony, including the rituals of religion. Then it seems to ramp up the effect of um, this bonding mechanism in the brain quite dramatically. And it appears to be principally the rituals of religion that do that. They're, they're the key thing that sort of triggers this endorphin system in the brain. And the rituals are often part and parcel of the things we do anyway, you know, singing, dancing, you know, think of Coptic uh, priests in Ethiopia or the deacons rather than the priests at services. They dance before the altar or be technically before the Ark of the Covenant, which they claim to have, um, uh, having lifted it from Jerusalem <laughs> in King Solomon's time. Uh, but every altar you know, every church has in its altar a sort of, if you like, a, 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 um, a version of the, the Ark of the Covenant. So they dance before the Ark of the Covenant as King David danced before the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible. So, you know, all those, and indeed, I suppose there are, you know, sort of the occasional uh, sects and cults that even engage in laughter as a, a religious ritual, famously. Uh, so all these things, you know, telling emotion, big emotional stories in the form of sermons or readings from the various good books appropriate to the particular religion, uh, eating together, um, having, you know, meals after a service, as many religions do, Sikhs uh, and some extent Islam, especially this point, you know, after uh, Ramadan, um, communal meals. Uh, all these things are... are very powerful mechanisms of bonding that we use outside the religious context in normal everyday life. So religion has kind of latched onto those and, 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 and exploited them, if you like, but then wrapped this, what amounts to a theological framework around it, which provides uh, an explanation for why it should work, if you like, and indeed perhaps more importantly, why you should keep turning up every week <laughs> to get, <laughs> to get your, your hit, as it were. Uh, but these, these are late. I have to say that that kind of theological component appears to arrive uh, uh, very late in the course of history. For most of our evolutionary history as a species, and remember we're only about 200, 250,000 years old as a species, for most of that period, there wasn't a theology. You have these kind of shamanic type, animist type religions that you still see in hunter gatherers. You know, they're trance based, they're immersive in the sense that everybody is involved, and, and very often they're based around dancing and singing, but they don't have any sense of gods usually, um, uh, and certainly not a god that hands down. A moral code so their moral codes are purely social you know this is how we've always done it you know 
Don't ask questions, just do it. Whereas when you have the doctrinal religions coming in, they seem to sort of appear all around about 8,000 years ago in the beginning of the Neolithic. Then you have a kind of theological superstructure imposed on this sort of ancient trance-based animist type um, uh, religions, uh, which essentially prov provide the justification for it in many ways, but also they kind of add something actually in in the sense of they add some form of gods in, uh, in another world who are inclined to punish humans if they don't behave right. I mean, sometimes it's just providing the right kinds of sacrifices. So, you know, so long as you keep providing the sacrifices to the God, things will be okay. Um, and that kind of pulls the community together and, uh, uh, in quite an important way, I think, that hunter-gatherers don't. Well, it allows them to live, basically, to live in much, much bigger groups. And you can see that uh, in, in the early Neolithic when they start living in villages and then the villages grow into towns and city-states and so on. Uh, and that's when you first see evidence of priesthoods and temples, i.e. religious, specifically religious spaces, which are reserved for those kind of functions only, and, and perhaps evidence of uh, hierarchies within the society, and particularly in, in relation to religious hierarchies. There are re religious specialists, is what happens, who, who, who know how to do things, know how to do the rituals properly, and become the guardians then of those traditions and make sure they don't properly hand them on to the next generation, those kind of things. Effectively, I'm going to steal your your words here and, and feed them back to you and sound smart. But essentially our it, it's our it's our nature it's our brain's sort of predisposition and aptitude for being social that also um made it ripe for religion. Yes. Uh in, in our early development. Yes. I don't I, I don't think Religion would have appeared in the human lineage had we not been so social. But we are social, or we are as social as we are, because that is a key characteristic of all the monkeys and apes, and especially the kind of larger brain ones, so the old world monkeys in particular, and uh, the great apes. Um, you know, the whole key to their success, evolutionary success, and they have been one of the most successful uh, zoological families of all, um, uh, certainly among the the mammals uh, and the birds, that you know they've been exceedingly. You know, primates were around before the dinosaurs went extinct, and they're still here, and they've hardly changed except their brains have got bigger. <laughs> Basically, you know, their their body shape and the way they work, as it were, is still pretty much uh, as it was sixty million years ago. Whereas most other Groups of animals have changed dramatically. You know, they've acquired hooves, they've acquired fins. Think of dolphins, all these kind of things. Uh, but anyway, the 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 essence of primates' social life is that it's a kind of implicit social contract. So basically, they're clubbing together to solve the problems of successful survival and reproduction cooperatively by forming these very stable groups, which are a primate speciality very much a primate speciality and we're we you know we're part of that syndrome if you like it's just that we do it bigger and better because we've got a bigger and better brain that allows us to do it but it's spun off the back of this 
you know, long, long uh, history of um, using sociality as a way of, as, a, as an evolutionary solution to the, 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 the coping with the uh, vicissitudes of uh, um, uh, life on Earth uh, and the uncertainties. But the, the, uh, the, the, what really has made the difference between us and other primates, that's to say why we have religion and they don't, has been essentially the size of groups we're trying to bond together, but also in addition to that, this capacity for mentalizing, which they sort of share, but their capacities in these terms are quite low level. They're probably no better than a five-year-old child can do. But what a human adult can do is kind of like three times better than a five-year-old child in terms of the extent of the mentalizing. So mentalizing is about understanding what's going on in your mind and therefore why you're behaving the way you do. You know, what, what are your intentions when you say something or do something? Um, and that's a much more sophisticated way of working with the environment out there. What it does, of course, is causes us to be so uh, immersed in this mentalizing way of looking at the world out there that we attribute mentalizing capacities to absolutely everything, <laughs> whether it's whether it's animate or inanimate. So you know, we speak of you know the the, the sky. Um, uh, being angry when there's a storm coming up, or the sea being angry, or you know, this uh, clouds are lowering at us <laughs> as though they had eyebrows and a, and a hard stare. <laughs> um, and we kind of do it all the time. We attribute um, life forces, let's call it, to things like springs or trees or particular mountains, because you know we have this sense that. You know, just as we walk around on the surface, so you know, other spirit um, forms of life inhabit these these physical features in in the environment, and that's a consequence of what you mentioned right at the outside: is this tendency to try and explain and uh, therefore control the world, and and that uh, comes directly from this mentalizing capacity. Because if we couldn't mentalized in the way we do, we would never be able to ask the key question, namely, why does it work like that? Why does the natural world work like that? Uh, is it possible for the natural world to be different from what we see in front of us? Once you can do that, and no monkey or ape or anybody else on the planet can, can, get, can, can lift themselves to that level of cognition, if you like, and um, ask that question, but once you can ask it, um, you can start to imagine that there are fictional worlds, right? So I'm going to tell you a story about what happened to Jim and Penelope uh, last week, you know, as a straight piece of fiction, you know, a novel. Um, or, you know, I can tell you about places you can't see, sort of my, my travels wandering around Never Neverland down the road, you know, in the next valley, which you've never visited, but I can kind of tell you about it. It's, it that's kind of a real bit and it, it, from there it's a very very short step to sort of saying no there's another world within which we all sit in our physical world which is a kind of spirit world if you like that there are 
uh, I don't know, goblin goblins in in, in springs or in in caves, and you know, and you can go and hear them. <laughs> go and go and stick your head into a cave, and you can hear the rumblings of the trolls at the base. And famously, of course, that's why what the Vikings, when they were sort of wandering around the coasts of Britain, thought with Manx shearwaters who nest underground and sort of grumble at each other and as, as they were sort of wandering around the coastal hills up in the northwest of Scotland um, you know they could hear uh, these rumblings underground Ooh, <laughs> the trolls are busy tonight <laughs> yeah when I visited um, Norway I was struck by how they've still got a very rich sense of how there's a troll for almost every strange well not even strange just everything that goes on in the mountains there's sort of a troll for it, isn't there? There's a yes, troll for that. There's yes, a troll. Yeah. Yeah. I need these beliefs are incredibly widespread. I mean, we kind of think they're, you know, buried in the deep past, but actually they're still kind of with us. You know, they're reflected in, you know, all these things like making wishes, you know, that, that some springs have sacred properties that uh, if you make a wish at them or throw some money in or whatever, um, good luck will befall you. Um, you know, you have all over the world and banyan trees in, in India, for example, which have this sacred property very often of, you know, if you, you tie a message on it, uh, you know, with some colored ribbon or something like that, you know, uh, good fortune will befall you. And, and you know, this is part and parcel of realizing that the world out there in contrast to the way animals, I always describe animals, including monkeys and apes, you know, of, of encountering the world we live in with their noses against the grindstone of it, right? So they just take it as it is. They can't step back from it far enough to kind of go, oh, you know, why does it have to be this way? <laughs> it's painful having my nose ground by to pieces by the, by the world out there. Maybe I could change it. You know, maybe I can. We can do things that will stop the bad things happening or make it more likely that the good things will happen. And um, you know, th those ideas are still deeply, deeply redolent in our psyche even today. And, you know, people still throw money into. <laughs> fountains in it i'm not sure if they always make make um make wishes when they do it um but you know they they also go what that one step further and they tie uh you know uh, requests to whoever you know for good good luck in their exams or f finding love or you know curing their, their their dreaded diseases or what have you and and we're very susceptible to that and you think you know the evil eye for example this concept that certain people uh, who i suppose you would consider to be kind of witches or wizardy type folk with special powers that if they catch your eye you know can can harm you in in all sorts of ways uh, and indeed that witchery as such you know is a major force that affects you that that um you know and that's still very um prevalent in in many parts of of africa let's say for example you know that there are people if, if a death occurs you know you don't know why it happened well you know the local witch or the wizard put a spell on them but you know you think of evil eye in southern europe but it was widely widely relevant. that that kind of is still there people still worry about it not as much as they did maybe a hundred years ago but you know it's something that still bothers them
we count some of these as superstitions, but you know they are deeply ground into our psyche. So the the books the books called how religion evolved. So to me that that begs the question. So how do you get across the idea? So do do you mean by that that there was a sort of you know Darwinian selection for those of us who were more predisposed to believe, or that the groups that kind of had religion within them or had had a greater propensity for it, they 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 proliferated more? In a sense, it's a bit of both, because it's operating in both directions. I mean, I think one of the problems when people think about uh, natural selection, Darwinian ev- evolution, they're really thinking in terms of what Darwin and the early evolutionary people wrote, you know, 150-odd years ago, uh, uh, which was really thinking in terms of individual benefits. So the the motor in the end to evolution is um, the success with which you propagate your genes, technically known as the fitness of the genes. It's the property of the genes, the the individuals, as Richard Dawkins famously said, are merely the vehicles (laughs) that the genes temporarily occupy on their way to um, uh, 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 eternity, if you like, promoting their, their survival. What they what has kind of been lost sight of, or perhaps isn't so widely appreciated as it really ought to be, is the fact that these very intensely social species, notably the primates in general, but also some of the species like elephants and the horse family, the zebras, the asses, the horses, and so on, are their principal adaptation to coping with the vicissitudes of survival and successful reproduction is group living. Um, And it's the success with which the group as a whole solves that problem that affects their personal fitness. So this is a, a kind of more complex interplay between these group level effects and uh, how these are costed out at the level of the individual and the individual's genes. So this is what's sometimes called now group augmentations uh, selection or or group level selection as opposed to group selection, uh, which is really doesn't work. I mean, that's selection for the survival of groups, and that's the end of it. The whole motor of of, uh, the evolutionary processes is the survival and successful reproduction of individuals, not of species or groups or anything like that. But these group-level effects whereby individuals can do better by cooperating, that gives you this kind of multi-level selection processes, somewhat more complicated, not necessary. It's kind of a derivative of... uh, W.D. Hamilton's concept of inclusive fitness, which was very close to that. He was thinking in terms of um, essentially kinship groups cooperating, which clearly they they do. Um, This is just extending that uh, a little further. But that that motor is very, very important. It it means that there's a two-step process here. So the, the animal has to be, or the individual has to be able to sort of negotiate the successful existence and stability of social groups otherwise it's back down to a lower level of fitness if you like doesn't mean to say it's going to go extinct tomorrow it's just not going to be as successful as it might otherwise have been 
if it, if the individuals cooperate together. So in that sense, what the religion component does is provide a mechanism for solving the um, coordination problem that bedevils all group living species. So if you look at antelope or deer or cattle, you know, they have sort of groups, but they're very temporary. Think of them as herds, really. Um, animals come and go uh, when they get bored <laughs> or when they want, one, one wants to feed when the, everybody else goes to rest and the group sort of breaks up and, uh, and dissipates. Uh, and what primates have done is solve that problem of preventing everybody else drifting off so that the group stays together and, and is always there when you need it. Um, and that that's actually a very taxing problem. That's why they have big brains, essentially. But also, in addition, they need these kind of deep pharmacological mechanisms um, based on these bonding behaviors, grooming in the case of, of primates, but augmented for us. I mean, we don't groom because we don't have much fur left except on the top of the head. But what we've done is sort of adapted the grooming patterns and the hand movements of grooming, if you like, in, in things like caressing and touching and hugging and, and patting and, and the like, which we do all the time. You know, we kind of don't think about it because we're concentrating so much on the conversation, <laughs> the intellectual conversation we're having, that we kind of forget that, you know, you're sitting sitting around the table in the pub, you're reaching out, patting somebody on the back, you know, or giving them a, a rub on the shoulder, uh, and all these kind of things, or if they burst into tears, you know, giving them a hug, all, you know, all these kind of things that we do, and we do it all the time. Um, um, I hasten to say not usually with strangers. It's very, very geared to how, how much of that physical touch we engage in is very geared to the emotional quality of the relationship, how close the relationship is to us. But it's there, and it's con going on constantly, and it's triggering the same mechanism in the brain as uh, grooming does in um, uh, monkeys and apes. But what we've done is add to that to increase the kind of number of people we can groom with simultaneously, these other things like laughter and singing and, and dancing and the like. And religion comes into that mix as what seems like, my impression is, a, a really very powerful addition to it so the individual is the one who's benefiting now because you know they're getting all the benefits of living in a group um and that's coming you know through being able to <clears throat> solve the problem of keeping the group together which is what one thing religion does i mean it's a nice example i think of how well religion works in this context from 19th century american um, millenarian uh, cults and communes, of which there were, you know, many thousands <laughs> through the 19th century, you know, from the well-known ones like you know, the Mormons and the Shakers and so on, and to some very, very obscure ones <laughs> which you've never heard of. You know, they would go out into sort of the desert somewhere or, uh, or far away and <clears throat> set up a commune and, and live by their principles. Well, the, if you look at the secular communes, many of which there are, one of the, the most of them are influenced by um, uh, Richard Owen, who founded the new Lanark factory community up in um, uh, Lanarkshire in Scotland, um, and then went off to America because he got fed up with the bureaucracy in England. 
<laughs> in the early 19th century. Uh, you know, these these secular communes, so they were kind of socialist, communalistic, you know, sort of live life together, as it were, in a small community. Um, their a- a- average size at foundation was 50 people, and their survival time on average was around 10 years, 7 to 10 years. And that, they usually fell apart because, you know, the leader ran off with the savings of the <laughs> that everybody had put their savings into the common pot and eventually the leader either behaved very badly or just ran off with their savings. In contrast, the religious communes had an average foundation size of about 150 and they survived on average for about 70 years. So lots of them are still with us, you know, the, the Mormons, the Hutterites. Everybody knows about, uh, you know, people like... Or, Many people know about the Anita community in upstate New York, which survived on into the beginning of the 20th century. I think the Shakers, very famously, because everybody was this fad for Shaker furniture in your kitchen, <laughs> all these kind of things, a uh, few, few, few years ago. You know, they, they were all had deep religious uh, foundations, basically. And I think. It was the religious foundations that kept them um, going for so long because what religion did um, is keep the lid on the stresses that otherwise bubble up whenever you're living with other people. Don't we know it? <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, it was sooner or later, just be, you know, other people just become so annoying. You know, you either leave or you um, probably clobber them one you know which is has the same effect because <laughs> it's not very very um conducive to a peaceful social life if, if there's lots of fights breaking out and that kind of thing so what you know that seems to be what's happening you know that's a sort of feature of primate social life it's a feature of our social life and but what religion then allowed us to do is just keep the lid on that enough by um by two ways i think particularly in the the, the modern doctrinal phase is it uh, um where you have these bigger communes as it were um that were set up is you've got a combination of a a policeman in the sky um situation where you've got you know the god in your religion because most of them in that, that particular case obviously were christian um in some form uh you know and, and god was wagging his finger you know this is a kind of more benevolent god than the kind of earlier gods who required sacrifices to these, these, these are mostly the gods who take an interest in human affairs and, and, uh, you know, sort of punish the, the backsliders and, you know, praise the ones who stick to the, stick to the rules. Uh, so you've got that co- combined with the kind of, if you like, that's top down discipline being imposed by, by the religious hierarchy, but that's combined with this bottom up, very, very old shamanic animist type trance based, uh, um, rich, highly ritualized, uh, form of, um, religion, which is, you know, providing, you know, it's, it's committing you to the principles of the religion and therefore to the other people you're living with. So it, it's allowing you uh, to both behave better, but also be more tolerant, I think, is what it's doing of other people's because of your commitment to, to the community as a whole. 
If you'd like to hear Robin and I dig deeper into how spirituality weaves its magic on our brains, check out Instant Genius Extra, a bonus podcast available via subscription on Apple's podcast app. Alternatively, do check out How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures, which is on sale now and published by Pelican, an imprint of Penguin Books. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, you can find us online at sciencefocus.com. See you next time. Thank you.